well, it might be cold and miserable outside, but it's warm and I hope welcoming inside. It's good to be together in the name of Jesus to worship God. One day, an expert in the law stood up and said to Jesus, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And so we come together to bring our prayers to God. Our prayers of thanks and our prayers of sorry. Let us pray together. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the gift of this new day. We thank you that we have been able to come together in the name of Christ, freely and openly. We thank you that in this place we find welcome within a community of faith. We thank you that whoever we are, whatever our life circumstances you, in love, receive us. We thank you for babies and children, gurgling and giggling, wriggling and whispering, trying hard to be still, but full of life and energy. We thank you for adolescence, aware of physical and emotional changes, starting to make choices that will shape their lives, working out what faith means for them. We thank you for young adults studying hard or building careers, dreaming of fulfilment and fearing failure, yet strong in their faith convictions. We thank you for those in middle years, discovering themselves to be the establishment, trying to relate to those both older and younger than themselves, wrestling with the nuances of a contoured faith. We thank you for those of senior years, bodies showing signs of wear, minds perhaps a little slower, but still full of life, with wisdom to share, and a lifetime of faithful witness. We thank you for every person here today, each of us in some ways like everyone else, and yet each of us unique and precious. Loving God, Too easily we fall into the trap of judging others, grumbling that our peace is disrupted or our comfort disturbed, asserting the superiority of our understandings and our preferences, trying to make you in our image 
and denying your image glimpsed in others. Forgive us and help us to grow in humility and love. Life-giving God, as we bring you our prayers, may we each know beyond any doubt that we are loved by you and that by your Spirit's indwelling, each one of us is being transformed more nearly into the likeness of Christ. And we offer our prayers in his name. Amen. Our first reading today is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Children, it is your Christian duty to obey your parents, for this is the right thing to do. Respect your father and mother is the first commandment that has a promise added, so that all may go well with you and you may live a long time in the land. Parents, do not treat your children in such a way as to make them angry. Instead, bring them up with Christian discipline and instruction. Our second reading is from Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53. Do you suppose that I came to bring peace to the world? No, not peace, but division. From now on, a family of five will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Fathers will be set against their sons and sons against their fathers. Mothers will be against their daughters and daughters against their mothers. Mothers-in-law will be against their daughters-in-law and daughters-in-law against their mothers-in-law. And our final reading is from Mark chapter 3 verses 21 to 35. When his family heard about it, they set out to take charge of him, because people were saying he's gone mad. Some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem were saying, he has Beelzebul in him. It is the chief of the demons who gives him the power to drive them out. So Jesus called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a country divides itself into groups which fight each other, that country will fall apart. If a family divides itself into, itself into groups which fight each other, that family will fall apart. So if Satan's kingdom divides into groups, it cannot last, but will fall apart and come to an end. No one can break into a strong man's house and take away his belongings unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. I assure you that people can be forgiven all their sins and all the evil things they may say. But whoever says evil things against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, because he has committed an eternal sin. Jesus said this because some people were saying he has an evil spirit in him. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. They stood outside the house and sent in a message asking for him. A crowd was sitting round Jesus, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside, and they want you. Jesus answered, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He looked at the people sitting round him and said, Look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does what God wants him to do is my brother, my sister, my mother.
Like last week, this isn't going to be a straightforward traditional sermon. It's not going to either have exegesis or exposition of the passages we've just heard read from us. Rather, they act as a kind of a jumping-off point for us to think carefully about our understanding of family and what it might mean in a 21st century Western European and specifically West of Scotland urban context to think about not just how we understand family, but how we understand church. Just like last week when we were looking at marriage, so it is with family. We will not find a nice, neat, tidy biblical mandate for what a Christian family ought to look like. But we will find resources to help us think about it. Since last week, I've been doing a lot of reading about theology of the family and discovered that most of the writers actually express a very narrow understanding of what that means. Most of them are white men growing up in the West, and so they assume a Western nuclear family, usually two generations, whereby the adults are involved in the upbringing of dependent children. While some of them recognise that family relationships may be complicated by the effects of relationship breakdown or by the blending of two previous units, nonetheless, a nuclear family living under one roof, and raising children is the assumed norm. So that means if we look at theology of the family, there are plenty of us here who don't live in the kind of families they're thinking about because they are just adults or they have one person on their own and so on. This rather functional understanding of family is reflected in the SCM Dictionary of Christian Ethics, Um, which I've printed out, there are four functions they come up with for a family on the sheets that you have. The function of the family is to regulate sexual practice, to ensure responsibility is taken for childcare, to preserve inheritance or descent, so that's land, property and money, and to share everyday labour. Now, there is value in all of those, and what they go on to say is useful But, you know, that respects a white Western societal norm as much as it does anything else. One of the challenges we face if we dare to ask the question, is there such a thing as a Christian family, is to recognise that our response is culturally conditioned and that that becomes very difficult in the complexity of 21st century Scotland. Parliamentarians of all political hues and theologians alike speak of family values. And in their head, what they usually have is an idealised image of middle-class society and I would suggest probably Middle England middle-class society where mum and dad and 2.4 children plus a cat or a dog live in perpetual harmony. Surprisingly enough, that doesn't reflect reality. And the information that I printed out for you from the Department of Work and Pensions illustrates just how diverse and complicated family life in 21st century Britain is. 
even in the so-called ideal families, there will be struggles and tensions that you can't get over just because it's composed of nice people professing a Christian faith. To equate a Christian family with some ideal of a nuclear family is not only unhelpful, it's also pretty much unbiblical. Shock horror. If we search the Bible to find stories of families, we find something that is very different from our post-industrial Western understanding. If you open up the green sheet that I gave you, there are some pictures of some Bible family trees. I got these off the web, and I have had a quick look at them, but I haven't actually checked them particularly closely against the Bible. But if we look at the family trees of Abraham and David, what we discover is very complicated polygamous families with several half-brothers and sisters, where in actual fact people we would define as cousins are also half-brothers where the children of concubines and even the children of adulterous affairs live as part of the family, seemingly with equal or almost equal rights. If you look at David and you look at Solomon, it's quite shocking, quite frankly. Whilst they may not have all literally lived under one roof, they were one family and they would have lived very close together and their lives would have been intertwined. If you read the stories in the Old Testament of those families, they are very disordered families, all kinds of problems. In fact, I would go so far as to say they're pretty dysfunctional. If we actually used the Old Testament as our way of trying to get a picture of family, I think we'd come away at best disappointed and probably disillusioned. Incest, rape, squabbling you name it, it went on in the families of these people. And that's just the people who we think of as godly, so who knows what else went on. So would the New Testament be more encouraging and more helpful? Once again, we need to be very careful that we don't simply read back our present-day Western understandings into a first-century context. In the Roman world, by the time that Jesus lived, monogamy was the norm. But families were very different from the way that we in the West experience them. One of the interesting things about the two biblical languages of Hebrew and Greek is the way they use the word family and the word house, which is actually very similar to the way it is used in English. Family can mean household, And it can also mean lineage, the kind of set of ancestors and descendants. So it operates in a forward and backwards way, connecting different generations. It's about maintaining land and property and rights. But it also extends sideways into large, complicated households of which most first-century Christians were part The family name, both literally and in terms of honour or shame, was very important. So the family would be understood in relation to the forebears, but it would also be understood in making alliances for the future. We spoke a little bit of that last week. But the household was much, much bigger than simply parents and children. 
there would probably be a few maiden aunts living in the household. And widowed grandparents, male or female. And maybe orphaned cousins. And there would be slaves with their partners and their children. And there might be what were known as patrons, people who could offer you money or services in return for living in your house. And you were somehow dependent on them, even though it was your house. So a family was actually more like a small business than what we might think of. The nearest I can think of as being similar in a British context would be the households of the landed gentry, as portrayed in costume dramas on a Sunday evening on television. The idea that there was a lord and lady of the manor and they had children and various relatives living with them and servants and so forth. That's the kind of picture to a first approximation that we get. Now, whilst I'm fairly sure that there were smaller peasant units, smaller peasant families in first century Judea and Samaria, the accounts in Luke's Gospel show us that Jesus' own family was extensive and interconnected. So, for example, the newly pregnant Mary went off to spend time with her elderly cousin Elizabeth and stayed with her until John was born. When the census was called, Joseph and Mary went to Jerusalem because that was their ancestral home. Now, we have a rather inaccurate reading of the uh, birth story in, in Luke because we don't really know Greek terribly well. But the best translations of that story will say Jesus was born in the stable because there was no space in the house, not an inn. It's a very different understanding, suggesting that this would be the household probably of distant relatives, and that actually far from somebody being mean, the offer of the stable, whilst unconventional, is about hospitality and family loyalty. So wide extended families that were connected to each other and supported one another. Throughout the Bible, we find stories of families that are very large and typically could involve as many as four generations. There would be people with no blood connections, such as slaves, and very complicated behavioural codes that perhaps wouldn't make a fat lot of sense to us today. So, if you're like me, you're already a bit confused and bewildered. But if that's not enough, I think it's fair to say that Jesus' own attitude to human families was at its best ambivalent. Far from protecting the status quo, he claims, as we heard read for us, that he has come to be divisive, to split fathers from sons, mothers from daughters, and so on and so forth. Despite the fact that we read that Jesus, as a child, was very obedient to his human parents, and that this continued on into the hidden years, once his ministry began, Jesus began to distance himself from his family. And we heard that reading where he was saying that you're not, they're not my family, you're my family. But we also get in John's Gospel, right at the end, Jesus making provision for the care of his by now elderly mother. Some parts of the church have a very pretty image of the Holy Family. 
of Mary and Joseph and Jesus and Jesus' siblings. But actually, if we read the Bible, it seems to be a family as troubled and confused as any other. So why might Jesus have made such negative remarks about family? Well, we have to take a little look into Roman culture to begin to unpack that a bit. In Roman culture, the highest level of allegiance that a person could have was to the state. And the most honourable thing to do would be to leave behind your family and your possessions in order to serve the emperor. And it could be something of this that is hinted at in Jesus' words. When I was reflecting on this um, over the week, I found myself remembering the hymn that I really don't like very much, I Vow to Thee, My Country. It's very much associated with English public school boys and with state occasions. But the second verse of that hymn says, and there's another country. And I think that's kind of what Jesus is perhaps saying here. Beyond your human family, beyond the state of Israel and beyond the Roman Empire is a higher call on your life. The call of the kingdom of God. And that call goes beyond blood ties and societal ties. So rather than being anti-family or anti-household, maybe what Jesus is saying, now you're part of something much bigger, a wider household, a more complicated family, and that's where your energy should be spent. If that's true then Christian family becomes synonymous with church. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But we have a challenge, don't we? We can't neatly transplant what we find in the Bible into a 21st century Western context because the families that we live in are nothing like those assumed in the Bible. We won't find neat and tidy answers to questions on family values or how relationships should work. The nearest to that we have is what is found in the household codes of the letter to the church at Ephesus and about the relationships between parents and children. Usually, these are heard as referring to adults and underage offspring. And they perhaps sound quite strict to us. But actually, in that first century context, they were really rather radical with their insistence that parents should not anger or exasperate their children. I have to confess, when I was a teenager, I used to cite that one at my mum quite a lot. Don't exasperate me, mum, it says so in the Bible. And children are to be respectful of their parents. So there is something about mutuality here which would have been very, very radical for its time. There are hints about negotiation as a framework for the family rather than just the father, and it would have been the father in those days, who, like the head of a small business, would say, this is what happens. It's not the kind of image of fathers that we have sort of loving and a bit soft around the edges. This was very much the managing director who would say, this is what goes. And the writer is saying, no, actually, in relation to your children, you shouldn't be winding them up, you shouldn't be exasperating them. And children, you should respect these adults, but that doesn't mean blind obedience. 
So we begin to see that actually what little there is in the Bible is not quite so simple as we thought. So what can we do? We can't force a match between our Western worldview and the ancient world in which the scriptures were written. So is there something else that we can find to help us? The theologians I was looking at this week came up with a very well-known concept amongst theologians, a South African concept called Ubuntu, I think that's how you pronounce it, which was popularised by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Now, I could try to explain that, but that would actually be both arrogant and inaccurate. So what I did this week is emailed some of our former students or students who were with us last year and said, you're African, what does it look like for you? How do you understand this concept? And I have to say they were very gracious because I'd kind of treated Africa as if it was all the same, which was absolutely wrong of me. And they said, well... Perhaps in my country we don't use the word Ubuntu, but this is what it means for us. And I want to encourage you to go away with this piece of paper and read what Ken and Yomi and Eric and Kay have taken the time to share with us. Something within Ubuntu and something within African philosophy generally is that family is, yes, those people we're related to by blood and by marriage, But it goes wider than that. It includes our neighbours and it includes strangers. And if I'm honest, receiving those words back from our students and thinking about that understanding of family has made me stop and think about how we relate to those folk of other cultures who come into our church and can be isolated from their blood relatives and their culture. We must be very strange. There is something we can learn. We can admire that philosophy and we can aspire to some of its values, but the reality is that we are well and truly embedded in Western culture and no amount of wishful thinking is going to change what 21st century Scotland looks like. So another thing I did this week was to sit down and go through our church directory and try to think what might be some of the challenges in relation to family for some of the folk in our church just now. So here are a few that I came up with very quickly. Firstly, I've mentioned that our students and immigrants can be bewildered by British culture and sometimes don't have the networks to help them work that through. There are older people who have no living relatives, who face the challenges of advancing years and perhaps can be a little uncertain where they find help. We have parents of young children in our church, which is wonderful. But many of those live hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from grandparents. And perhaps they long for their children to have a kind of grandparent relationship but it's not so easy in practice. And then there are middle-years adults who are anxiously trying to support elderly or frail parents, sometimes over substantial different distances and with the pressures of work. 
There are parents of adult child who adult children who remain financially dependent, who have no paid employment and can't afford to set up home on their own. There are grandparents who become primary carers for their grandchildren in order that both parents can go out to work simply to pay the bills. And there is loneliness. A lot of lonely people, whether old or young, people who spend long times on their own. And there will be others. All sorts of real challenges for people in different kinds of domestic setups. So, what can we do with all of this? The reality is, as I look around here, there are a lot of people, myself included, who live a long way from blood relatives. And in some measure, the church becomes a substitute family. I'm not even sure I like the word substitute, perhaps just family. The church becomes a family. Might it be that rather than just making friends amongst our peers, we can begin to form cross-general relationships that are supportive and encouraging? Maybe some of the older folk could form meaningful relationships with the younger ones so that the wisdom of years can inform the energy of youth and the vitality of youth enrich the life of elders. Can older people learn to express their views in a way that doesn't infuriate or antagonise younger people? And can younger people respect, if not necessarily agree with, those whose worldview is shaped by the thoughts of a bygone generation? Can we support one another so that parents of young children are not exhausted and exasperated, so that old people don't spend days in isolation, and so that nobody burns themselves out but everybody feels valued. Could it be that our church could embrace the radical demand of Jesus that we commit fully to the kingdom of God, not at the expense of our human families, but rather in order that we can build an Ubuntu-like community where everyone is valued and cared for? where three or four generations from a dozen or more nations may love and be loved, may grow in grace and grow in faith and love, and find the support they need to bring strong homes, build strong homes for their own families, and also be helped to support their own extended families. Lots of people trying to support people far away. You see, that first century picture of a family household could have involved something like 100 people. So it's a similar size to Hillhead Baptist Church. Might it just be that a church as a household of God's people is what we really mean by a Christian family? Let us come together for our praise for each other and in our praise for others. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to meet here this morning, together as a family of God, 
to worship your name and to do so as part of the wider family of God across the world and across all of time. Help us, we pray, to help each other to grow in faith, to support one another on the journey of the Christian life, and to support and care for each other as part of the family of God. Mother God, we pray for families everywhere in our world, for families where mothers pretend that they have already eaten so that they can feed their children, for families where time stands still as parents wait for that which will never happen, the safe return of their son or daughter from war or conflict. For families who watch over the last hours of a dying child, asking why and getting no answers. For those who have no one and feel alone. And for those who are part of a family and yet still feel alone. For families struggling to understand the failing functions of a much-loved elderly relative and feeling guilty about failing to understand, failing to be patient, and failing to be present. Be with these all now. Let them know that you are there with them in their grief. Let them feel your presence among them along the journey. Let them know that they are not alone, as you are with us always. Loving God, we pray for the family of God here in Hillhead and throughout the world. We pray for your guidance and your wisdom in our relationships with each other, in our relationships with those within this family, and those who consider themselves apart from the family of God, and for your guidance and your wisdom in our relationships with you. Help us to be inclusive, to welcome into the family all who want to be part of this, all who are seeking for purpose and meaning in their lives, all who are seeking for a loving relationship with you and with your family. Let us welcome all who want to be church and all who just want to be. As you have loved us with a love that will not let us go, let us also love one another and love others. Merciful God, we bless your holy name for surrounding us with loving kindness and tender mercies. You are slow to anger, yet quick to show kindness, love and mercy. You do not treat us as we deserve, but show mercy towards us. Help us to show mercy and tolerance to one another so that all are welcome in this place and in the family of God. Forgiving God, we thank you for your greatest gift of all. You gave us your only Son. It is he who intercedes for us. It is he who forgives us. It is he who is our salvation. 
It is he who died for us, for you, for me, and for all. And it is he who, despite everything, still forgives us. We bring you now these prayers in his name. Amen. Loving, relational God, who has created us in your image and likeness, and has set us within human communities for our nurture and service, bless each one of us with real love for one another and for all people, that we may show forth the kingdom of God, the family of God, in all we do and are, in our homes and in our church. So go with us into the week ahead, guiding us and equipping us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.